Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our series in Hebrews, sharing from Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 39. Now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the second half of our Zoom service this morning as we continue on in the book of Hebrews and the study of it. And we'll be looking at the second half of chapter 10 this morning. But before we do that, let's start with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning. We come before you knowing that uh, though we are separated physically from each other, we cannot be in each other's physical presence. Our spirits are still connected to each other. And Lord, we come before you with the knowledge that we can serve you in any capacity, in any restrictions, and any complexities that this world throws at us. We serve not this world, but rather we serve the true and living God. And through you, we pray, Lord, that we would be mighty warriors within your kingdom and that we would serve each other, that we would build each other up, that we would encourage each other at this time. Lord, help us as we continue on in the study of Hebrews. Help us to understand the complexities of it. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to allow it to make a difference in our lives, in our paths with you. So we look forward to the continuation of this, Lord. We look forward to just being together in this capacity. We're grateful grateful that we have this ability. We're grateful that we have this technology. And we thank you for it. And we thank you for all these things in your wonderful name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are looking into the second half of Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Now, the first half of that chapter, the author of Hebrews spent time on Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. The second half of this chapter deals with entering the most holy of holy places with confidence, a grave warning, and a call to stand firm in the midst of trials. And that's going to be how I break down these 20 verses. We'll be looking, looking at them in three parts. In the first part, we'll look at how we can enter the heavenly equivalent of the most holy of holy places. The second part will have us spending time on a dire warning against willful sin. And thirdly, we'll be encouraged as we live by faith in the midst of trials as we answer the call of Jesus Christ to follow him. Now, before we jump into the deep end of this pool with these verses, let's put on a life preserver so we don't sink to the bottom because I got to tell you, I don't float very well on my own. What I mean by that is I want to spend a moment reminding ourselves of the complexities of studying the book of Hebrews to avoid misunderstanding the nuances that the writer of this letter used in corresponding with his audience. First and foremost, we need to remember this letter was not written to the 21st century Gentile church, that is us. This letter was written to the first century Jew who had accepted Christ as the Messiah the author heavily referenced the Mosaic Covenant in his arguments and practices of that covenant, as well as the historical references that would have been second nature to the people to whom this letter was addressed to, as they had been versed in them for generations. It's critical that we do not try to apply 21st century thinking as we seek to understand this first century writing. Now, that doesn't mean it's of no value to read someone else's mail. On the contrary, God's Holy Spirit orchestrated the writing of this letter, not only for the intended audience's benefit, but it has survived so that we can apply the principles taught in it to our lives today. In order to try and avoid 
misinterpreting this book, we need to have a little voice in the back of our head constantly asking us, what did this mean to the first century Jewish Christian? And if that voice in the back of your head is that of the Holy Spirit, so much the better. This is a challenging book, with some sections still causing much debate among even the most learned of theologians, and I don't profess to have all the answers. But I want to share with you this morning my thoughts as I have studied this chapter. So with that in mind, let's jump into the pool, and hopefully in the end we'll swim and not sink. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Verse 19 starts off with the word, therefore, a connecting word linking the author's previous teachings and comparisons of Christ to the tabernacle worship and sacrificial offerings, to the new reality of being in God's presence. Under the first covenant law handed down to Moses, as we learned earlier, only the high priest was allowed to access God in the most holy of holy places in the tabernacle, and then only once per year, and then only with the blood which he offered for his sin and the sin of the people. At the end of chapter 8, the author noted that a new covenant had been brought into being by Jesus Christ, thus rendering the first covenant obsolete, and what is obsolete is no longer to be followed. This did not imply that God had failed or that the first covenant was flawed, but rather it failed because of the sin of the nation. And so God brought in a new covenant, one that would offer forgiveness for the sin of the, uh, for the sin of the people by the once for all sacrifice of his son. This new covenant that Jesus brought in is a covenant of grace with Jesus both priest and king, something that was not permitted in the first covenant. And now everyone would have access to God, not just the high priest, and all would have access to God all of the time, not just once a year. And an offering of blood would not be needed as Christ provided that offering once for all. I wonder just how confusing this was for the Jewish Christians who had been taught by their parents and by their priests the Mosaic Covenant. Phil alluded to this during his message last week. They would have practiced this all their lives, and now all of that was out the window, made obsolete by this new covenant instituted by Jesus. For us, this is all that we've ever known all of our lives, is this covenant of grace brought in by Jesus. But for them, it was totally flipping their world upside down. Have you ever tried to unlearn a habit, good or bad? The human nature of someone always wants to go back to what is most familiar when under stress. And keep that in the back of your mind for now because it will come into play a little later on. Here the author was encouraging the audience that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can approach God not with a guilty conscience because of our sin both past and present, but rather we can draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance of faith because our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse us and our bodies washed with pure water. 
What that means is that if you have accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah and your life is now committed to him, then you've been made pure in God's eyes by the once-for-all sacrifice of his son that was made for you. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he came to this world that we may have life and have it to the fullest, and you can find that in John chapter 10. Having that assurance gives us hope in a hopeless world. This world can't even stop the common cold, let alone prevent the virus from becoming a pandemic. This world has shown that it has the will and determination to go to the moon and back, but yet a man will not walk across the street to make peace with his neighbor. As Christians, we fail and fall short of God's will in our lives, not because God has failed or is obsolete, but rather because we desire to live with one foot planted in the world and one foot planted in God's kingdom. It reminds me of the time when as a young boy I tried to have one foot planted on the dock and one foot planted on a boat no longer tied to the dock. You have to let go of one or the other or else you end up on neither. When we get it right though, when we have both feet planted in God's kingdom, then God can use us in mighty ways, ways we never thought possible. Was this a problem with the first century church? Was this a problem they were experiencing? Were these new Christians trying to keep one foot planted on the first covenant and one foot planted in the new covenant? The author of this letter was trying to encourage them to hold on tight to this new covenant and let go of the first one, which God had rendered obsolete. And he brought it into perspective when he told his audience to hold on without turning to the left or to the right, to the hope that they professed in full confidence of the reliability of God's promises. The writer has been revealing in these verses that his concern for the fidelity to the faith they professed is not an abstract philosophy, but a real and present threat that needs to be taken seriously. Have you ever heard the expression, there's safety in numbers? That is what is being encouraged here when the author tells the recipients of this letter to not stop meeting together as some have been in the habit of doing, but rather to encourage one another by spurring each other on with love and good deeds. Because we are reading someone else's letter, we don't know with certainty why there was concern about people drifting away. Was the parable of the sower coming into play here? This chapter that we're in contains some very real persecution that these early Christians faced. Was this causing some of them to fall away or give up meeting together? Or were they feeling pressure from family and their community to return to the practices of the first covenant? Notice the author puts himself in the sentence when he says, let us not give up meeting together. In fact, in every sentence so far, he's been using the word we and us. It's as if he's saying, I'm here with you. We're in this together. This section is about edification or building each other up. It's not about taking. It's all about giving. That's the difference between the world and God's kingdom. The world asks, what's in it for me? God's kingdom asks, what can you do to make someone else better? In the reality of today's world of pandemic, meeting face-to-face -face in a building is not possible right now. But I don't think... That's the lesson that the author had in mind. In fact, we could all be meeting together in a building for our own selfish reasons, which is not what is being taught here. Meeting together is not about what's in it for me. It's not about meeting together just for the sake of it. It's not about we have to meet together in a building, but rather it's all about how can I make your life better, brother or sister?
what can I do for you? Today, for now, we just have to do it with social distancing. Gord's Rental has a sign that uh, I think says it quite aptly. A sign reads, work together, but stay apart. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Just before the author moves into another warning, he instructs the recipients of this letter to treat their future expectations as certainties. In other words, don't lose hope. Don't lose the hope that you have based your salvation on, but encourage each other, and do so more intently as you see the day approaching. What was the day that was approaching? It certainly refers to some event that was so well anticipated that it needed no explanation to the author's audience. Some have interpreted this day to be the second coming of Christ when he would be setting up his visible kingdom here on earth. But the tone of this and the previous verses seem to be more ominous in nature. It's as if the people were anticipating some calamity was approaching on the horizon. It's believed this letter was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Did the people sense this was about to take place? Whatever the reason, the author made it very clear that they were to hold tight to their faith and the promises made by God, and they were to encourage each other and not fall away. Now, the recipients of this letter find themselves facing another warning. This is a bit of a pattern in the book of Hebrews. After time of teaching, the author pauses to warn the audience, and his warning seems to escalate in their seriousness as the letter goes on. And let's take a look at the second part of our breakdown today. And those are verses 26 to 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These verses parallel those of chapter 6 in their finality and their judgment. And it's this finality of judgment that has caused much debate over the centuries among theologians. Some have interpreted the people being spoken of here as being people who never truly were Christians. They may have made professions, but they never truly believed. I don't agree with that interpretation as the author's writings and teachers are to an audience who he believed were genuine Christians. Again, verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have reached, received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Some translations read, if we sin willfully, both imply a conscious and repeated sin taking place. And we're not given examples of what that sin might look like. The author may have been referring back to the sin of apostasy as he spoke of in chapter 6. Or perhaps more in a broader sense, it could be by definition, any sin is described in Numbers chapter 15, verses 30-31, which reads, But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people, because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. That person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. 
One commentary I read titled such sin as sin of presumption. That is sin resulting from a behavior perceived as arrogant, disrespectful, and transgressing the limits of what is permitted or appropriate in God's eyes. In Hebrews, the author states that for those who carry out such sin, especially since they are in the possession of the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for their sins is left. Only a fearful expectation of God's judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This is really heavy stuff and not to be taken lightly. The author's not playing around with his words. If this doesn't cause someone to sit up and pay attention, I don't know what will, and we need to sit up and pay attention to it as well. Now, before we go any further with these verses, it's a good time to remind ourselves of one of the basic principles of biblical interpretation. That is to look at the whole Bible when studying any verse. You don't want to be caught up in target fixation. Fighter pilots can fall prey to this. You see, when a fighter pilot is engaged with a battle with the enemy, he may have the enemy aircraft in front of him, and he may be trying to line it up to shoot it down. And he may become so fixated on that plane in front of him that the rest of the world just seems to fade away. And he doesn't notice a second enemy fighter pulling in behind him, looking to shoot him down. You don't want to focus your attention only on one or two verses and lose sight of everything else in God's word. Some have interpreted this verse in chapter 10 and the parallel verse in chapter 6 as indicating that if Christians succumb to such sin, that they will lose their salvation and that there will be no second chance, even if they realize the error of their way, and come to God with a repentant heart. The problem I have with that are verses like those found in Matthew chapter 19. In the story of the rich man who asked Jesus, what must he do to get in eternal life? Jesus answered him with a command that was more than the man was willing to carry out. Jesus told his disciples, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples then asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. As well, all throughout the Old Testament, God warned his people that if they wandered from his commands, he would turn his back on them, but if they repented, he would forgive. Even when the Israelites turned from God to follow idols, God still sent his prophets to call them back, and that he would restore them if they returned to God. Verse 27 speaks of a raging fire that would consume such sinners. In chapter 6 of Hebrews, the author also uses fire to describe the fate of someone willfully living in disobedience to God. Verses 7 and 8 in chapter 6 compare such a person <clears throat> to a land that only produces thorns and thistles, a land that is worthless, and in the end, it will be burned. To truly understand such an analogy, you have to think like a farmer, like a first century farmer. Such a land would be worthless to a farmer. You can't eat thorns or thistles. You can't even graze livestock on it. It truly is worthless. But if you set fire to such a land, the fire not only consumes what is worthless, but the ashes left behind adds nutrients to the soil, making the land better and more productive than it was before. You don't set fire to land only to forever discard it. Rather, you take such an extreme action to a piece of ground to purge it of what is worthless in order to make it fruitful again. 
In the book of Jeremiah, the story is told of the Israelites in the land of Judah being taken from their land as captives of Babylon, of the Babylonians, because of their sinful ways and worshipping false gods. For 70 years they were held in captivity until they returned to their land. All of this was orchestrated by God. Because of all that is in the Bible, I don't believe the punishment being described in these verses is an eternity in hell. <clears throat> Again, verses 26 and 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. No sacrifice is left for sins. Remember earlier when I said to keep in mind the thought of how difficult it must have been for these first century Christians to switch from the first Mosaic covenant of priests and sacrifices to the new covenant of forgiveness by grace brought in by Jesus? Is this what the author had in mind with these two verses? Was he implying to his audience that you can't live in both worlds? God has made the first covenant obsolete. You can't go back to it to make a sacrifice for your sins on the altar. Jesus Christ has made that sacrifice once and for all, the perfect sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice that can be made in his place. In fact, there never was a sacrifice in the Mosaic Covenant for such sin considered as deliberate and continual. The author goes on to say that in the time of Moses, anyone who rejected God's law died without mercy on the testimony of just two or three witnesses. How much more will the punishment be for someone who tramples the Son of God underfoot? Other than stating such a person will be subject to God's raging fire, the author doesn't elaborate on how such punishment will be carried out under the new covenant. Such punishment will be harsh, though, for the sinner, and it's definitely not to be taken lightly. As I stated earlier, I don't personally believe that the punishment for the Christian who knowingly and willfully continues to sin in such ways is an eternity in hell. I do believe the cost will be high and that the person may wish that the punishment was death just as it was in the terms of the first covenant. Many forms of divine retribution can fall on a human life that are far worse than immediate death. Jeremiah made such a plea to God regarding the punishment inflicted on Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations. Regardless of how you interpret these verses, something we can all agree on is that no one should regard these verses as an idle threat. God is not like the parent who warns their children with threats they have no intent of ever carrying out with their kids to try and get them to stop doing what they ought not to be doing. God himself has claimed the right to take vengeance and judge his people. It will be severe, but it will be just. The author of Hebrew quotes from Deuteronomy to drive the point home. Now, if the author of Hebrews ended here, it would truly be disheartening, but he doesn't. This portion of his letter ends with the encouragement for those who remain faithful. And let's read those final verses in chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest of, in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting, lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, 
He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. After receiving such a dire warning as in the previous verses, it's as if the author is saying, but wait, all is not lost. But he doesn't go on with promises of rose gardens and lazy boy chairs for those who choose to follow Christ. Jesus Christ told his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. The readers are told to look back to those early days when after accepting Jesus as their Messiah, they faced persecution ranging from public insult to confiscation of property to imprisonment. Even in the midst of such trials, they found joy because their hope had not been built on things and possessions of this world, but on the hope of the future inheritance and eternal inheritance. Sometimes I think we really lose sight of that in our own lives today. The people are encouraged to press on and persevere because to carry out the will of God is to receive God's promises. One of those promises that was made by Jesus, that there would be a second coming of the Son of Man, but not even he knew the hour when that would take place. In verse 37, the author reminded his people of this. God's timing is just that, God's timing. I've heard it said that God is never late in keeping his promises, and likewise, he's never early also. To God, time doesn't seem to mean as much as timing. The people needed to be patient and fearful, I'm sorry, patient and faithful, so that when this event did take place, there would not be found any evidence against them that would warrant charges being brought before them by God. The author finishes off his encouragement by putting himself back into the narration. Verse 39 again, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. A reminder of the salvation that has been secured by this group of Jews who accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah and put their trust in him and chose to follow him, that's what the author was trying to get across to them. In conclusion, these 20 verses were part of a letter written to a group of Jewish Christians as a reminder of where they came from and the new faith that God that God had called them to. They are reminded of the promises that God had made to them and the responsibility to each other. Along with that is a very dire warning that is not to be shrugged off if the commitment they made to God should ever turn into willful and continual disobedience. This portion of the book of Hebrews ends with the encouragement to persevere even in the midst of persecution and look ahead to the eternal promise that they had received. <clears throat> There's a lot going on in these 20 verses, and you may or may not agree with everything I've said here today, and that's okay. As I said earlier, I don't profess to have all the answers, but it's been my desire to share with you this morning my thoughts as I've studied these passages, and it's my hope that you will study this book on your own and that you will see what God leads you in your own understanding and application for your life. Just remember, don't succumb to target fixation, but consider the entire book as you study this or any other part of the Bible. As well, keep asking yourself, what did this mean to the person or people to whom it was written for? And how does it apply to me today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I thank you for this opportunity that we've had to come together to you to spend time around your word. We've sang hymns and praises to you this morning. We've read your word. We've looked at your word. We've studied your word. 
Father, forgive us for those times that we get us wrong. Encourage us for those times that we get us right. Build us up as we seek to serve you as your humble servants. Lord, we pray for your spirits working in our lives, that we would be open to his leading, that we would be open to your will, and that we would be eager to carry it out, regardless of what the cost may be. Help us, Lord, to always remember our possessions are not possessions on this earth. There are things that we have in our grasp for only a short time. But the eternal possession that we have, it is the inheritance that you have promised us, is so much more wonderful, so much more that we have to look forward to. It pales everything else in comparison. Lord, again, I thank you for this time. I pray that we, as we go out our own way this week, that you would call us back together, and that we can all be called back together, confident in the fact that we have followed the true, the living, the only God. Lord, I thank you for this, and I pray for all this in your wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.